Our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. We are in our sermon series called Skid Road and talking about how we slide into the temptation and particularly the temptations of money, sex, and power. Last week we talked about money. This morning, a reminder to parents, this is PG-13. We're talking about the temptations of sex. And so I thought we'd have a little talk about the birds and the bees and the butterflies. So the butterflies are actually a study I stumbled across a few years ago where they took a male butterfly and they put a male butterfly in an enclosure with the image, an enlarged image of a female butterfly. And so the male butterfly, who was a living, breathing butterfly, saw this image, enlarged image, of a female butterfly in the enclosure, and he spent a lot of his time paying attention to the image of the butterfly. So that was part of the study, to see how much attention this male butterfly would give to this enlarged image of a female butterfly. So the other thing they did in the study was they then introduced a real live female butterfly into the enclosure. And they watched what the male butterfly did in response to the living, breathing female butterfly in the enclosure. And you know what happened? The male butterfly still paid attention to the image of the butterfly. The enlarged image of the butterfly was where all the male gave his attention. He pretty much ignored the real live living female butterfly that he could, could mate with. And this was, this was his mating ritual, but he was trying to mate with an image <laughs> rather than a real life butterfly. I thought about that and of course the light bulb went off in my mind and I said, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's exactly what we struggle with in our culture, isn't it? I mean, if you look at our image-driven culture, everything's airbrushed, enlarged, 
And then that drives this whole Im- this self-image issue that we could have a whole sermon just on body image and self-image and how our society is really distorting that. So now then you tie in uh, what's going on sexually and you look at the pornography industry. You can see how uh, sex is used to sell things, but it's not a realistic image that is being, that is being used. It's, a, it's an unrealistic image. It's an unrealistic expectation that gets people ignoring real life people, <laughs> living, breathing human beings. If you think about that, that's not the way, and you'll see as we unpack this morning, that's not the way that I think that God designed us or wired us. But I did pull some statistics, and there, there are tons of statistics out there about uh, pornography in our nation, but that, they'll surprise you. They surprise me every time I go back and read them. And one of the things is that over half of the world's pornography sites are in the United States. For the entire world, we are the host nation. There are an average of 92 million visits a day is the average. 92 million visits per day is the average. And I was surprised to, re- the, to see the increase in female users. One-third of those 92 million visits are from females. And then also they're learning and they're connecting that, that uh, youth that are exposed to this at an early age, preteens and teens that are exposed to it, it's affecting brain development and how they develop uh, in, in their understanding and expectations of sex as they grow older. And that's, that's, that's affecting them. This is, there are studies that show that. And... I would say to you, the other thing that's a little bit shocking to me is that the U.S. is the top consumer of what we would call obscene pornography. Of all the countries in the world, the U.S. is number one in that. So I think Jesus was pretty wise when he said, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now think about this, that what Jesus was addressing was this temptation of sex, but particularly this idea of lust, that lust is part of the thing that we wrestle with, both male and female, and that we're struggling with this desire. Now, one of the things that we have to acknowledge, too, is that there are the two strongest drives in the human personality and the human condition are sex and food. Those are the two strongest drives that are given to us. And so our drive for these two things are very strong and very powerful within us. Uh, And I would say that this particular drive of lust is a very strong drive. And it's not easy to handle. It's not always easy. But it's also very easy to slide and to go on to skid road into this temptation of lust. Now, the thing about lust is really that it pursues a desire that doesn't see the other person as a person. Lust is just out to satisfy itself. The other thing I want to say to balance this out a little bit is that sex is a gift. It's a good gift. It's not all bad and tainted and, and, and dirty. It's not that way at all. It's actually a good gift from God. The issue is how we handle the gift. And there are some gifts that we need to handle with certain care and certain things that we need to do to handle that gift that God has given us. And the Corinthian church was struggling with this, right? That's why Paul wrote this passage, wrote this letter. He actually goes further into uh, more of this in chapter 7 about husbands and wives. But in this particular chapter, he's saying to the Corinthians, he's saying to these people, he's saying to this culture, 
And the culture has been saying this. This is what the culture was saying. I have the right to do anything. That's what the culture was saying. That's what the Corinthian church was saying, is that I have the right to do anything, and particularly what they're saying is I have the right to do anything I want to do with my body. Because in the Corinthian mindset, in their worldview, they, didn't, they said the body was separate from the soul. That what happened to the body didn't affect the soul or the spiritual life or the emotional life or the psych, psychology, the psyche. So they, in their world, they were saying, you know, what does it matter what we do with our bodies? What, why, why is this important? There's nothing else going on here that's just physical, right? Have you ever heard that today? It's just sex. It's just biological. It's just two consenting adults. What, what, what's the big deal? Well, let's take a look at your brain on sex. Have you ever thought about that? There was an old 80s, none of you remember this, younger people won't remember this, but they had this old commercial and they took an egg and they broke it and they put it in a frying pan and said, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Do you all from the 80s remember that one, right? This is your brain on sex. How about that? This is what's going on inside your brain when, in, in, during sex. It's that, first of all, serotonin is released. This is a, 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 brain, a chemical in the brain, a uh, neurotransmitter. And so <clears throat> what that gives you is a feeling of calm and a stress-free feeling. So serotonin is a, is a good uh, brain. Uh, what's happening in your brain is very good, so you feel calm, you feel relaxed. But here's the couple other uh, chemicals that are happening in the brain. One is another one called oxytocin. Now, oxytocin is also released, and it's known as the bonding agent in the, in the brain. So oxy, to give you a picture of this, oxytocin is the same chemical that's released when a mother nurses with a child. When a child and a mother are nursing, that oxytocin is released in the mother's brain and in the child's brain, and that forms a bond, a strong bond, right? Doesn't it? Moms, can I get a witness here this morning, right? And you ever heard about mom brain, right? You get mom brain, right? Oxytocin, that's what's going on. You get mom brain because of oxytocin and you're forming this bond. Same chemical being released during uh, mating as well between two human beings, that this oxytocin is released and bonds are being formed. It's also known as the cuddling hormone when it comes to this subject. Another chemical that's being released is dopamine, which is the reward uh, chemical. It's the feeling of, and this is what drives a lot of addictive behavior, is that you feel dopamine gets released, and it can create a, a strong craving for someone or something whenever that chemical is released, so that creates a craving for more. And it also, it gives you focus, more focus, when that's released. And so, if you think about that, you begin to get more focused on that particular other person that you're involved with. And then the, the third, or the fourth chemical that's released. There's actually more, but the other one that I would mention is something called adrenaline or norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is released. That gives you the rush uh, that raises. Also, though, when you're getting that rush, here's what else is happening. Your memory capacity is increased. So in that adrenaline rush, you're laser focused. And so you begin to remember details that you wouldn't normally remember because of that rush. And so your memory becomes more fixated on those details of the other person. So why do I say this? Well, I want you to notice it's not just sex. And all this is happening in a part of your brain called the limbic system, which is the center of emotions. And so if you look at the brain chemistry, 
behind this, and they've studied this, if you look at that, what's happening is bonding. You're emotionally, physic, not just physically bonding, you're emotionally bonding with another person. You're, you're forming a memory with another person. You're forming a bond with another person. It's not just sex. It's not just a physical act. It is emotional, it's physical, it's mental, it's psychological, and I would say and agree with Paul, it is even meant to be spiritual. Think about that. It's not just a physical act between two consenting adults. And this is why how we treat it matters. Paul raises this, and also Jesus said this, and Genesis tells us this, same thing, same message, verse 16. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now that idea of being one flesh takes it beyond the physical to what we would call intimacy. So intimacy is more than just a physical act. It's emotional bonding. It's psychologically bonding. And so all this together actually is forming an act of emotional bonding with that other person. So the idea in, from Genesis all the way through the New Testament is this idea that sex was created for an intimate relationship, not just a casual biological relationship. And then if you take that, you take that view of, of intimacy rather than just sex or lust, and you move it one step further. That's what Paul does. I want you to notice how in this passage Paul addresses the body. He goes on and he says this in verse 13. The body, however, was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. And then verse 20 in the end says, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies. What Paul is saying is that there's not this duality between spirit and body. And he then says one more thing. He says, your body, my body as a Christian, I don't know that this applies to everybody, I think, but it applies to Christians, is that my body doesn't belong to me. (laughs) My body is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what I do with my body actually matters not just to me, but to the Lord and to God's people and to whatever else has happened. So there's more to this, Paul is saying, than just the physical. And so this is why I advocate, and I would advocate for, and I would encourage, and I think the church has done so throughout the centuries, to do two things, celibacy in singleness and fidelity in marriage. Did you hear that? Celibacy in singleness and fidelity in marriage. Pretty high standard, isn't it? <laughs> Especially in today's world. But that's what the ball is moving us towards. And that's why for centuries we have held this position because it's not about sex, it's about intimacy. Does that make sense? That the, the pursuit, we're pursuing intimacy, not just sex. And that's part, of, I think, the, the better way of doing things. That's why Paul goes on and says in verse 12, he answers that question, I have the right to do anything, that's what he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
I may have the right to do it, but as a Christian, I'm not going to let it run my life. I'm not going to be mastered by it, but I'm actually going to be the one who is in control of these desires and these temptations in my life. Still doesn't solve the problem that we're tempted, does it? (laughs) Doesn't solve the struggle. Just says we're supposed to master it. Well, how do you do that, right? I was, uh, I used to be the sex talk guy when I was a youth pastor. Like, you know, we need somebody to give the sex talk. Let's talk, let's get Matt to do it. You know, that, I was that guy. And so I gave a lot of talks to a lot of groups of teenagers over the years. And one of my, my favorite analogies was this, that I would tell them sex is like a water slide. Have you ever, have you ever got on, how many people here have been on a water slide, right? Yeah. Have you ever tried to stop yourself once you started going down the water slide? Have you ever like, like freaked out, panicked, and like, ah, you know, like you're trying to stop yourself, right? And you're trying to, you climb, you've ever tried to climb back up a water slide, right? Near impossible, right? So my point would be this, don't get on the water slide of sex. Like, don't get, once, because once you get in the water, once you get into that situation, it's going to get harder and harder to reverse. And so, the main point is to not go there to begin with, to, for, to figure out where the boundaries are so that I can begin to uh, not put myself in a situation of temptation, which is also a part, a part of all temptation, isn't it? Like all temptation really is about not putting ourselves in the situation of temptation, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's power, no matter what it is. So if we want to, if we want to honor God with our bodies, if we want to be people who are, are doing this and mastering this, then we're going to have to look at ways to set boundaries so that we don't put ourselves in those situations. And so there are a lot of things we can do to address that. So I came up with two things that I think are important. There's probably five things or 10 things, but I thought about this. What does it look like to be masters of sex, right? And I purposely chose that wording because I thought you'd remember it better. <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great to be the master, right? You know, be, and I could go a whole bunch of different ways with that. But anyway, we will refrain. But I would say the first thing I would say, instead of just saying don't do it, I would say this, pursue intimacy. That's the point of it, right? That's the purpose of this gift. The purpose of this gift is to have intimacy. And so my, my thing is, it's a good gift, and it needs to be helping us experience intimacy as human beings, so pursue intimacy. What does that look like? What does it look like to pursue intimacy? Remember, intimacy is more than physical. It's about a relationship that's loyalty, trust, commitment are involved in that relationship. So those things, those qualities of the relationship actually help build intimacy within to the relationship. So I would say this too, and I'll make this a a guarantee You ready for my personal guarantee on this? The better your relationship, the better the sex. The better your relationship, the better the sex. Because it has to do with intimacy, not just physical. So think about it that way. So if if you're married, I would say continue to date your spouse. You know, continue to date. Continue to have romance. Continue to build an intimate relationship with your spouse because that's going to bless you and your spouse. So keep pursuing intimacy in your marriage relationship. Because here's the thing, I'm going to tell you, I've now experienced this, the kids leave home. (laughs) And it's just the two of you again. 
So if you have kids and your world right now is revolved around raising kids, go on a date. Do some dating. Because you're going to see this person again when the kids go off to college or work or move out of the house. So be aware of that. This, this day will come. And so pursue intimacy in your marriage relationship. Now, if you're single, what does that look like? How do you pursue intimacy as a single person? Well, I would say again, intimacy isn't just about sex, right? So there are ways that as a single person, I can still pursue good relationships, solid relationships without engaging in sexual activity. I can still experience some levels of intimacy without it being physical, with good friendships, good community, uh, uh, meaningful relationships in my life. And I would say, I would also break uh, singleness out into two different groups and I could be wrong, and single people, please talk to me about this if you, if you, if you have a word on this about because I'm not single. I haven't been single for a long time. But I would say this, that some people, and I think we in the church have neglected to say this, I do know that there are some singles who believe that this season of their life is to remain celibate, or they feel called to celibacy. Paul is an example. Jesus is an example. But also, I think sometimes I, in talking with single people, that they would say, you know, I'm in this season of celibacy. I'm, I'm in a season where I just want to be celibate. I just want to, to be on my own. And I think that's valid. I think we need to validate that and say, it's, oh, that's okay. You know, we don't, not everybody has to get married right away. Not everybody has to pursue marriage. Um, Jesus didn't, Paul didn't, so we can't, biblically, we can't just assume everybody's to be married or that that's what God has called them to do. We, we make that assumption a lot. So if you're single, I would say to you, you pray about that. Is that what God's calling you to? If God is calling you to marriage, then I think still pursue intimacy. And I would say, give yourself a vision of what intimacy will look like in your marriage and shoot for that, aim for that intimacy, work towards that intimacy. Um, you know, even as I was, uh, I made a lot of mistakes dating. My wife could tell you that she watched some train wrecks before we started dating. And um, I'll let her tell those stories. But, but one of the things that we did <clears throat> early on when we started dating was we said, you know, we want to save sex for marriage, which we saved sex for when we were married. And we said, we want to pursue intimacy in our marriage. And so we set a boundary. But it's very important that we agreed to that, right? I can't tell you how important it is when one, both persons in the relationship agree to set a boundary together. That's very important. When you have one person setting the boundary and the other person not really setting the boundary, that makes things very difficult. So everybody's got their own situation. Fortunate for us, we were in a situation where we agreed to those boundaries and we saved and we created this very intimate relationship within marriage. And that's been a blessing to us for going to be how many years? 29 years. And I would say marriage today is better than the first day I got married. Did you hear that? Because a lot of what you'll hear is, oh, it's going to you know, get harder. Or that's not been my experience. That's not been my experience. But I know that's not everybody's experience. Just know that's not been my experience. So pursue uh, celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage because that protects intimacy. Does that, does that make sense? That's the, that's the point of that, to protect intimacy. Lust is counter to that. Anything that's lustful runs against intimacy, whether it be uh, out of marriage, uh, adulterous affairs, whether it be pornography, those are issues of lust that will, ne- will interrupt 
and undermined intimacy in a relationship. So stay away from those things and pursue intimacy. And that was the other thing that Paul said. And notice we hear this again and again when it comes to temptation. We heard it the first week in James, right? Flee. We heard it in the Joseph story, run away. We heard it, we heard it last week when it came to money, flee again. We heard run away from the pursuit of money because it's the root of all kinds of evil. And again, we hear in Paul today, flee sexual immorality, right? Get away from it. So that's the next thing. Run away from lust. Not intimacy, but run away from lust as fast as you can. Don't get on the water slide, so to speak. Now, why, why do we need to run away from it? I got a game uh, this past Christmas for my daughter called Bean Boozled. It's a Jelly Belly uh, game. Has anybody seen the game Bean Boozled, right? Yeah. So I got it for my daughter for Christmas because I thought it'd be a great practical joke, right? So what you do is you spin this dial and it lands on a particular jelly bean and you have to eat that jelly bean. Now the trick is, is that the jelly beans look exactly the same, but one might be peach flavored and the other one might be earwax flavored. So one might taste like dirty socks and the other one might taste like, you know, peppermint or whatever it is. And so you could get a good one or you could get a not good one is what I'm saying. And so part of what I would say to you is that I think lust is kind of like that. (laughs) It looks really good on the outside, you know, your eyes get tempted and you pursue that and you fall into that and then you bite into it. And if you've ever noticed this about lust is it leaves you feeling yucky bad taste in your mouth, empty, like, what did I do that for? Maybe even guilty, because it, you've been being boozled by, by lust. <laughs> That's what's happened. It's, it's not going to actually get you to intimacy, which is what you're wired for. You and I are wired for intimacy, for relationship, but lust will never give you that, and pursuing lust will never lead you to that. It will only interrupt intimacy. And because lust is only focused on the external, the image, and lust never sees the other person. That's the insidious nature of lust, is it never sees the other person as a whole person. It sees the other as a means to an end, not as another human being. And that's the problem with lust and why there's so much abuse in our society is because lust is taken over rather than a pursuit of intimacy. So we need to per- get away from lust. Run away from it as fast as you can. Wherever that temptation is, avoid that place of temptation. I know from talking with many people over the years, one of the things we advocate for, and this is, this is not easy, but one of the things is if, if, if lust is one click of the mouse away for you, Move your computer into a public space. Don't keep your computer in a, in a separate room where you can close the door. Keep your computer, and your, I would say this, parents, keep your kid's computer in a public space where you can look over their shoulder any moment of the day. No hiding in the room, those types of things. So if you can, find a way to keep that computer usage in public view for everybody else. That creates accountability around that computer. There are also filters and things that you can put on your computer um, that will help. They're not foolproof. They're not a guarantee, but again, something that you can do. I would also say it's great to be in accountability with other brothers or sisters. If this is an issue for you, 
um, I would say get into an accountability, talk to it with some other close, trusted Christian friends that you can help hold you accountable to this. That is powerful as well. Again, none of this is foolproof. None of this will solve all the problems, but these are steps that people can take to flee this temptation. But basically, just don't get on the water slide. Just don't get on the water slide. You know, I want to just go back to that one point about seeing the whole person. Because intimacy is about seeing the whole person. Lust fails to see the whole person. And I actually saw this uh, exemplified, illustrated in an article I stumbled, uh, someone actually gave me a few years ago called The Hookup Culture. I don't know if you're familiar with that, folks, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, they were talking about hookup culture in today's, on today, today's college campuses. And this idea of hooking up was that the, the, they, college students weren't, um, in the article, college students weren't dating each other anymore. They were just hooking up. They were just having sex and then going about their student life. So they were just making these connections. They were swiping left or right or whatever. They, you know, I don't even know what, how that works. But what was happening, they just started to develop this thing. And so they were interviewing some of these college students in the article, and they were asking them what it was like to be involved in this, cult, this hooking up culture. And it was interesting, to a T, every single one of them said, I'm lonely. I wish I could date again. I wish I could just have a relationship with somebody else. Why would they say that if, if everything was great, just, just having sex? <laughs> because God didn't create sex as just a biological act. <laughs> God created it for intimacy. God created it for relationship. God created it for, 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 these, for human beings, men and women, to come together in a complementary way and to love each other in an intimate relationship, in a marriage relationship. That's how God created it. I didn't design it. But our brains do go, take us there. Our relationships take us there. And so I would say to you, find a way, whether single or married, to find a way to intimacy. <clears throat> One of the things I say to married couples, they come and they stand before me on that great day and they're dressed in a beautiful white wedding dress and a great tuxedo and they look great and they come together and there's joy and there's tears and they stand before me as a pastor and we bring God into that relationship. And one of the things I often say to couples as I encourage them in their marriage is this. I look at the groom and I say to him, your fingerprints need to be all over her heart. Your fingerprints ought to be all over everything about her. You should know what makes her tick, what motivates her, what makes her laugh, what makes her cry. You should know her emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. Your fingerprints should be all over her heart. And I look at the, the bride and I say, your fingerprints should be all over his heart. <laughs> You, you should know everything about him, what, what makes him laugh, what makes him cry, what, what, what gets him up in the morning, what drives him. Your fingerprints should be all over him because that's intimacy. 
And the goal of marriage is intimacy. And that's what God, because that's what God designed us for. That's what God made us for. Amen? We're going to celebrate communion this morning. I love that we celebrate communion. Because I know that as we hear topics like this, and maybe we hear some imperfect, keep in mind, I'm not perfect either. I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I'm another human being. But I am called to this role of speaking God's word to you, whether I like it or not. Sometimes I got to say hard things. I wish they were always easy. But I'm thankful for this table. (laughs) Because we both come to the same table of grace, of forgiveness, of covenant. And whether or not you and I have it all together, we have a Lord Jesus Christ who did have it all together and showed us the way and gives us grace when we stumble, forgives us when we fall down. When we do fall into temptation, guess who's there to pick us up? Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, if you need help, the Holy Spirit will help you. I forgot There's a whole powerful spirit called the Holy Spirit that when we're tempted, that if we invite the Holy Spirit into that temptation, the Holy Spirit will help us with that temptation. So don't forget the Holy Spirit, like I did. But know that you come to a table of grace today. And I love that I can follow up this sermon and last week's sermon and next week's sermon on power with God's grace. Let's pray together.